Uh, The reading this morning is taken from 1 John chapter 3, uh, starting at uh, at verse 11 and through to verse 24. And if you want to follow it in the Church Bibles, it's on page 1227. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence, whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Thanks be to God. It would be useful if you uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 John. We're pursuing this, leading us up to uh, Advent Sunday, and uh, pursuing these themes, these great themes of uh, light and love, as you will uh, have already noticed, and we, uh, we're continuing um, through this book. So having explained the nature of God, having explained what God is like, and that was the whole point of that opening hymn, demanding though it might be, yet saying, by grace we may praise your name and affirm your name. God is light, that's the nature of God, as light. And uh, you have that just in the opening uh, verse. Just uh, turn back one page, 1 John 1 verse 5, and you get this statement. This is the message you have heard. And often John says, from the beginning, taking us right back to our origins. And I declare to you, what is it? What's the essence of God? He is light. And in him there are no shades of darkness at all. He is the very essence of light. Now, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, well, there's something very wrong. We're living a lie. We're deceiving ourselves, nobody else. And then verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, well, of course, we are self-deceived. And the church is here to banish self-deception and to give us confidence in God who gives us grace. 
And what John does now is to give this second facet um, of the, the character, the nature of God. And it's expressed, yes, God is light, but God is love. And, of course, the two cannot separate for the purpose of a series or a letter. They are put uh, separately, but essentially they stand and fall together. The, the classic illustration is parallel lines. They run together. They seem to meet when you look at a straight line, but they don't. It's a bit like the parallel lines between God who chooses and we who respond. We who say, I've decided to follow Jesus, and yet before it, God has chosen us. And you get human will and, and God's providence working together. Now you've got light and love working together. You can't separate them. Indeed, it's the great apostolic theme. This was the, the thing that undergirded the church from its very inception. Turn to Ephesians uh, 1 and verse 15, for example. You see this recurring constantly. Just a couple of examples. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse uh, 15. Here it is. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. It is really a travesty of the gospel where people think that religion is a private thing. A living faith in Jesus Christ which is expressed in corporate fellowship with believers. Turn to Colossians. You get it again. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Why? Well, here it is. Because we've heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Exactly the same. You have a living faith in Christ and it is seen in the way you love one another. And uh, you have it again um, in verse Four and so forth. However, that's perhaps sufficient just to say that these are the two lines that we're pursuing. These, are, if you like, then are two uh, authentic marks of the Christian faith and of a Christian believer. Faith in Jesus Christ. You, you could say, yes, he is the saviour of the world, but faith in Jesus Christ says, but he's my saviour. You say, he is Lord, he is the cosmic Christ. Yes, but he is my Lord. And, and sometimes people struggle, like Thomas, for a long time, being in the company of Jesus, and yet, in the resurrection, my Lord, my God. Precisely that. So, 1 John 3, 11 to 24, develops the idea of, if you like, and this is the best way now to illustrate the sermon. It's very simple in a sense, um, but it's here in the passage, like two families. Two families. And you, you, you develop this idea that the, the families are seen in contrast to each other. And we look at the two simple headings. First, the contrast in attitude. And, and, and you see this is glaring before us here in, in 1 John 3 and verse 12. Do not be like Cain. That's not a good role model. Don't be like him. Who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be like him. That's a, a family trait that should be avoided. It's a negative mentor, a negative role model. And he's motivated, and this is common to all of us, on an average week, I suppose, that uh, we can give way to jealousy very easily. 
and a sense of injustice or hatred, that it can be just below the surface, seething. One of the things about uh, Han and I went to Rotorua, there were certain times when these great deep geysers, geysers are, that come, they shoot through the earth. It's there, bubbling beneath the surface. And, and there can be a, a sort of a, an emotion like that, below, ready to erupt in human relationships. And it does this one thing. Take this with you. What this does, this contrast in attitude reflects an inner battle. You can't see it. You see its results, but you can't see the battle. Turn back right to the beginning, to the book of Genesis. It comes up as Genesis 5. It should be Genesis chapter 4. Just look at this for a moment. Book of Genesis chapter 4. And the Lord appeals to Cain. This is, this is very, very challenging in a way. Thinking about the danger of giving way to these strong negative emotions. It reflects an inner battle. So Genesis chapter 4, you'll remember the context of worship. Abel brought uh, uh, sheep of the flock. Um, but Abel, verse 4, Abel, Abel brought fat offerings. So, sorry, and then verse um, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour this is the Lord speaking to Cain so Cain was very angry we, we zero in on that and his face was downcast then the Lord said to Cain the Lord came to him and spoke to him and he, he speaks about the two things that were so clearly wrong in his life why are you angry why are you downcast if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Will you not be saved? But if you do not do what is right, and this is very descriptive, there it is. Look, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And of course, what John is doing is reflecting on that. Oh, different language, different culture, different time, but the same issue as we face today. Sin is crouching at the door. What does Cain say? He says to God, I'll do it my way. It's, it's my choice. It's my call. I'll do it. You keep out of my life. Now, how many people are like that? I'll do it my way. He wouldn't accept God's way. He knew better. So what John is doing here, contrasting this, coming back to 1 John 4 and verse 12, it says, don't be like Cain. You could be. Sin could be crouching at your door today, and you could give way to it. And it's not only a self-destruct what happens to Abel. This type of emotion is never just you, but the ripples are felt in family, with children, and so forth, and in society. You have to accept God's way. And so, verse 12, he belongs to the evil one, the devil. What does that mean? It means I live in darkness. I live in darkness. And so, the contrast, uh, verse, coming back to 1 John 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from darkness to light. And you need to make that transition as sin crouches at your door. Pass from the one to the other, from death to life, from darkness to light. And it's a play in words. Verse 15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And we know that no murderer has eternal life in him. 
It's, a, it's an incredible contrast that, that John is making here and urging us to choose. Light, darkness. It's the contrast of these family likeness. Death, life, love, hatred. So I would appeal to you. From this simple reading, in a way, don't lose the battle. Nobody will know the battle that rages in you other than the Lord himself. Don't lose the battle there, the inner conflict. So today, sin is crouching at the door and it demands to consume us. And that's why John begins in 1 John 3 verse 1, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. That's what we are. Sin ready to destroy. You remember the way that Paul put it to the early believers at, at Philippi about responding. We think if we do a contrast then between Cain and the Lord Jesus. If you were to, I don't know if it comes before you, Philippians 2, this classic passage that is an extract from one of the early hymns of the church. But how does he, how does he begin? In Philippians 2 and verse 5, he says this. Before you sing the hymn, this is it. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What was that like? Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being, in human, being made in human likeness and appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the application? Verse 16. Perhaps this is a great 316 for us, isn't it? In 1 John, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Even, even in the human perspective, greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus lays down his life for his enemies. And the appeal to Cain and the appeal to us today, while the ink isn't dry, don't be like him. Don't be like Cain. That's the first contrast in attitude and the second contrast in, in action. Look at verse 15. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Now, this is, a, this is tricky. Uh, and to try to explain this is open to misunderstanding. It appears that verse 15 takes us into a very tough area. It's a territory that we should go in lightly. What John is essentially saying is this. This is what happens where there is the absence of love and this flags up its importance. It is John's way of emphasizing that if we are in any way like our Heavenly Father and we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, then this love isn't just um, a New Year's resolution. It isn't that we're going to try harder. We're not going to keep it up. But we are trusting Him and His love to stay within us. 
If we looked at this purely in a straightforward sort of way, it seems that it must be, stay with me on this, it must be worse to murder someone than to hate them. It must be worse to murder someone. After all, if you murder someone, that's it. That's the point of no return. A life has been extinguished. You could hate someone, you could be forgiven, and you could come through that. Many of us have, I guess. But what we must remember here, however, is that John is not writing about social issues. He's not writing about criminal justice. What he's writing about is spiritual truth. This inner relationship. So in a world of policing, a world of law courts, social order, community stability, then for sure to murder is far worse than to hate. It is. But, stay with me here, in the context of God's law, however, the spiritual demands to love and serve each other is the greatest. Therefore, to hate is to break God's law. What does it mean, then? We're not talking about social order. We're talking about human relationships. To hate means if we were given the opportunity, we would kill someone. Now, we're relatively polite and mild people here today. Hard for us to accept that. Hatred is not just an irritation or a frustration with someone whom we don't like or someone who's, who's hurt us very badly. It is an obsessive, compulsive Motivation to eliminate someone because of this deep-seated antagonism. And so you come back to this contrast. Contrast in attitude. Contrast in action. And the point is, what we believe, this is the point, impacts how we behave, even unconsciously. Hatred is incompatible with God's love. They cannot coexist. They cannot. Hatred in, love out. Love in, hatred out. Do you see the contrast then in verse 16? This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. That's the implication. The contrast is between Cain and Jesus. The devil brings hatred and destruction. And darkness, Jesus lays down his life. And love gives. Love heals. Love reconciles. We know from the great 1 Corinthians 13, read at weddings and rightly so, but for a divided church or a divided family, love keeps no records of wrong. That's a big ask, isn't it? At the heart of God's love is the cross and it's love in action. And it's a practical love that you have, verses 17 to 18, and you, and you see it comes like this. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? What is that an appeal for? In, in a world vastly disproportionate in terms of these world's goods. Dear children, verse 18 let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and truth. Do you see the contrast? So, it's more than words. 
It's more than words. It's more than feelings. It's more than singing, whatever our preferences might be. It's more than praying, important though that is. This love changes my attitude, makes it more like Jesus. And this love motivates my actions. And it's more than just what I want to do. So it affects my giving. I, even today, with all the business of cuts and everything, giving money is relatively easier than giving ourselves. It, in, it involves my relating. How do I relate to people with whom I really don't like very much? And they don't like me very much. Maybe they have cause to. How do you do that? What about my involvement? It's not a good word, is it? Involvement. I don't want to get involved. We were listening to um, a speaker week last Wednesday from the Leprosy Mission. And uh, he used this quote, which some of us have heard before I have, but it came with me with freshness, and it's this. Um, in the context of the, the needs of leprosy and the deep sense of injustice as people are isolated out of ignorance and so on, in the communities, in, indeed even in their families. And the, this was the, in that context, he said this, one person cannot change the world. But with the involvement of people in the context of leprosy or anything else, you can change the world for one person. You can. You can here today. You can do that. And it is a lie of the devil to say, you can't. What's the point? Nobody takes notice. Everything's relative. I think that's a lie of the devil. And then he quoted... Uh, Mother Teresa, who, dealing with lepers and hunger on a scale that would, is unimaginable, when people who supported her said, how, how are you going to feed, how are you going to help, how are you going to bring healing to these people? And she replies, we are going to bring healing and help to these people one at a time. One at a time. That's it. One at a time. How does God change hearts? One at a time. How does God redeem the world? One at a time. How does God meet with us at the Lord's table? One at a time. One at a time. And we should dispel the devil's lies that it doesn't matter. It does matter. He can change our attitude. He can shape our actions. He can motivate our will. Uh, if you heard the radio this morning, you heard that it's 250 years, the birth of uh, William Carey. And uh, he was deemed to be a rather uneducated uh, cobbler. And while he was working on shoes, he taught himself Latin and Greek and Hebrew and so forth. He was actually a genius. And he became the father of modern-day missionaries. And there are some Wycliffe translators here because of his birth 250 years ago. And his dictum was going to India with a, a wife who suffered from depression, with all of, of, of the heartache and so forth. Expect great things from God. That's fair enough. But his second one dictum was attempt great things for God. We may be good at the first, 
It needs to be followed with the second. Attempt great things for God. And he'll forgive you if you make mistakes. And through it, he'll make you stronger. This is how the love of God lives in us. And at communion, you and Jesus. Now, how do we conclude and apply this? I think John is aware of, of a tendency, just a tendency, a little tad of a danger. Look at it in verse 18. Dear children, and it's a tone of affection, it's not a put down. Let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and truth. Do you see it? There's the contrast. It's a whole series of, of, of contrasts here in action. There's the prevailing tendency then among us as very sincere Christian people. And it's this. That actually becoming a Christian is just a, a theoretical exercise. Listening to sermons, singing, praying, coming next week listening, that sort of thing. But when the rubber hits the road, when we're in a world that's hurting and broken, I have to say that. Because it is a danger. I'm not saying that we fall into that trap, but we could do. It's a theoretical exercise, but no real practical experience. So you see in verse 24, the last verse that we have before us. Experience, application, verse 24, those who obey his commands. It would be easy if he said those who believe him, but he didn't. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know this by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. There is something about experience that is invaluable. So, Christian assurance. John's saying, how do you know that you're a believer? Well, it is always strengthened by Christian obedience. What I know, I want to reduce and put into practice. The Nikkei sign should be in all churches. Just do it. Just do it. And God can overrule in our mistakes. Just do it. Just say it. Just go there. Write that letter. Make that phone call. Engage in that impasse. Christian assurance is strengthened by Christian obedience. Do something, he's saying. And secondly, Christian assurance is sourced by the Holy Spirit. He's been saying this all the time. Look in 2 verse 20, for example. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know, you know experientially. It's not, he says, and you understand. He's saying, you know from your experience. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. And look in verse 27, he says it again. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. And now, in this last verse, chapter 3, verse 24, those who obey his commands live in him and he in them, and this is how you know, like how you know between the, 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 the relationship between a man and a woman in that inextricable union of relationship. You know. Adam knew Eve. You know. This is not theoretical. You know. That he lives in us. We know by his spirit that he has given us. And lastly, Christian assurance is strengthened by love. It's the point of what he's saying here. By love. Verse 16. This is how we know what love is. The same word. So we experience. How we enter into it. Not simply understand it. 
We know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life and we ought to lay down our lives. It follows through with that application. You can give without loving. Think about that for a moment. I guess perhaps you have. Maybe under pressure or a guilty conscience. Or you, you, you've looked at the television you said, this is appalling. I'm, I'm writing that check. I'm, you can... You can give without loving, but you know, think of it like this, you can't love without giving. You can't. Because love needs an expression. You can't love without giving. God so loved the world, he gave. And we demonstrate our love that we give and not hold back. This is what God is like. Who are we to sing his praises? The answer, we may, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. As we confess him again, he's my saviour, he's my Lord. How does he meet us? One at a time, one at a time. 